Nothing's more powerful than an idea whose time has come. The show is about those ideas. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Don't mind my deep, baritone, sultry voice today because um, it's a little deeper than usual, uh, mainly because I just got over COVID. Um, but don't worry, if you think I look bad, you should see what I did to the virus. <laughs> so today's guest is somebody that um, you know I followed very closely early in my career uh, as a young marketer and as a business professional and whose work has profound uh, impact on me. Uh, not only in terms of how I think about business in the world, but you know a lot of my success, and that would be Jeffrey Moore. Now, many of you notice him uh, from his iconic book, Crossing the Chasm, right, which talks about uh, marketing and selling disruptive products to the mainstream customers. You know, we all know about that bell curve, right? Um, if you're a business person and you live in Silicon Valley, you don't even you haven't read this book, like. Are you really living in Silicon Valley? <laughs> so um, a must-have book. Now, his body of work, I will admit, I own all of it, right? I'm actually missing one of the books, but for those who are watching on YouTube or on uh, Spotify, you can go ahead and take a screenshot of this. But his body of, the, of work, and I'm going to read these books off, range from uh, all these books called, such as Escape Velocity, uh, The Gorilla Game, uh, dealing with Darwin, living on the fault line and inside the, uh, the, the tornado, all about disruptive technology adoption, you know, and the marketing and selling of disruptive tech, you know, uh, iconic names like Steve Jobs and uh, other, other people like that have read his books, have been influenced by him, you know. But now I'm going to contrast all of these books he has here with his latest book, which in my opinion stands alone because it has nothing to do with marketing or technology or any of those things. And I would, I, I'm going to guess, you know, we'll see what happens, that the impact of his latest book might overshadow all of this other work that he did, right? And not, and not because those other books aren't great. Those books, I mean, they're, they are just amazing books. I, I tell people all the time, most business books are full of fluff. And so there are very few classics that are worth reading over and over and over again. And his books are one of them. But his latest book is fascinating. And it, and if anything really demonstrates how good of a writer he is, which um, interesting fact, he used to be a English professor at Stanford before going into technology and marketing. So his newest book called The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, right, is fascinating. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of the beginning. So in this bold book, high-tech's best-known strategist makes a seminal contribution to the search, uh, to, uh, to the search for meaning in a secular area. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical. Where do I fit in the grand scheme of things? And the ethical, how should I behave? For many people, religion is no longer a source of answers, and despite a century of more, uh, of, or, or more of efforts, nothing has really replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach. Side note, that's the thing that makes him a great author. I mean, he's... He, he writes with uh, punctuality and wit, but he brings a framework. So instead of just writing for the sake of writing, like he actually brings a framework. So you actually, you know, not only learn something, but change your behavior. Okay, that's what I love about his writing. Anyways, Moore uses a signature of a framework-based approach to tackle this challenge, taking on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical staircase that leads from the Big Bang to the foundations for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase, what the universe tells us about life, ethics, and mortality, provides a coherent and unifying platform for full human life. And that's really what this is about. This book is literally his attempt to explain what, what is the meaning of life. And I got to be honest with you, as somebody who has a background in science, I went to medical school, spent time in business, 
I don't know if anybody would be able to replicate this. It, it is extremely well done, and because he takes these extremely complicated topics, such as physics and biology and everything, and summarizes in them in a way that he's able to weave them together makes sense. And of course, again, if you're watching on YouTube or, or on Spotify, there's literally a staircase framework he develops, starting with physics and leading up to analytics and theory about the meaning of life. So with that being said, um, let me give you just a real quick, uh, quick background on uh, Jeffrey's um, uh, ba uh, background. And before I do, go buy this book. It's a, this is a great present for the holidays. It's a great present for when somebody graduates for anything. This is, this is one of those really unique books. I mean, you know, it's hard to buy books for people because a lot of times the popular ones, people have either bought them or someone bought them for them. This is such a unique book. I mean, I, I'm going to leave the link in the show notes. I highly recommend you go out and buy it. So Jeffrey Moore is an author, speaker, and high-tech business advisor, best known for his seminal book, Crossing the Chasm, first published in 1990 and still in print, having sold over a million copies. It has been translated into a dozen languages and is still required reading in most business schools. Since then, he's published six other best-selling books and advised high-tech enterprises such as Salesforce, Microsoft, Intel, Adobe, Autodesk, Box, Airbnb, and Splunk. Moore has a bachelor's degree in American literature from Stanford University and a PhD in English literature from the University of Washington, where his dissertation was on strategies for living in Edmund Spencer's The Fair, Fair, Fairy, The Fairy Queen. I have no idea what that is, but I'm going to look that up. Subsequently, he taught literature, conceptual models, and writing at Olivet College before returning to the Bay Area to take on a career in business. So here's my interview with Jeffrey Moore. Uh, again, uh, there are few few authors living today who do such a such a phenomenal job writing on complex topics, and Jeff Moore is one of them. You're gonna love this interviews interview. Go out buy this book. This book is I don't know, fifteen twenty bucks worth every penny. You'll thank me later. Buy it, put it on your shelf. When when the when the time has come, the book will call to you. I promise. All right, here's our interview with Jeffrey Moore. Enjoy. Mind Loomers, welcome back. I know I went on a little bit of a hiatus. I'm sorry. I missed you. I know you, you missed me as well. Gosh, do I have a great treat for you. You know, because coming back, I knew that many of you were like, hey, what, what, what's the deal, man? We're starting a new year. We need new books. We need some recommendations. I know. I'm a man of the people. I work for you. And I said, you know, I can't just come back, you know, with just a regular episode. I got to come back in style. I got to make, make a big splash. And so I'm honored you know, and, and quite excited to have the great, the powerful, the legendary, I'm just trying to make him blush, by the way. You are, it's working, <laughs> it's working. Jeffrey Moore, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Um, no introduction needed. You know, Jeff is, is a very well-respected, legendary author out of Silicon Valley, a technologist, a, a, a consultant to great businesses and executives like uh, Mark Benioff, um, and has this just incredible body of work, you know, again, I've, I've mentioned this so many times on the show, there's not a lot of good business books out, out there. There's a lot of them are just absolute garbage and recycled fluff. Jeff's book, uh, which was written back in the nineties, that was probably the one most famous one you know of is crossing the chasm sold, uh, well over 1 million copies. It's, 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 it's translated in multiple languages. I have my copy here that I've had for a number of years, as people can see, it is bookmarked, it is beaten the hell up. I need to buy a new one. But to, to kind of segue into this new book that you just released, I want, I, I pulled this together and I was, I was shy. My wife's like, no, no, you should really do this. I'm like, okay, because this is a man who's got this fantastic body work. I hope to emulate even half of this, right? And, and I, I've been, I, I did some working out this morning, but here we go. These are all of his books. And I and if you're if you're listening to this on podcast, I'm gonna count one, two, three, four, five, six. I think I have them all here. This is the body of work ranging from crossing the Kansas, inside the tornado, escape velocity, gorilla game, dealing with Darwin, living in the fault line. This amazing body of work that is focused on technology adoption, on marketing, on business, on investing. You know, um, a body of work that few authors get to to develop. In their in their careers, and at this point, 
Jeff Moore decides to depart and do something completely different, reinventing himself and writes a book on what? On business? No, a book on life, specifically metaphysics. And the book is called The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality. I don't know how the hell you wrote this, Jeff, because the topics in this book can fill up half the bookshelves, you know, behind me. So that long introduction, let me ask you the first question. Why did the world need this book? Oh, man, I'm not sure. I know that I needed to, this is every other book I've written. I thought there was a market for the book. There was a problem the world needed to solve. I, I wanted to do this. This one was like, I need to write this book. I'm not sure if anybody needs to read it. So, and what happened was, you know, you, you, you spend some time on the planet and you realize, well, I'm not going to be here forever. Have I learned anything? Is there something I'd like to like write down and pass on to my grandchildren or whatever? And I'm a reader like you, like you and I think like the, the, the listeners of this podcast, I read pretty widely and I like to read a lot of nonfiction. And I was reading about astrophysics and I thought, well, that's the big bang. That's really interesting. And I read about microbiology of the cell. And I go, Whoa, that's, that's really interesting. And I'd read about Darwinism and Darwinism actually had a bunch of impact on my marketing strategy stuff. So that was really interesting. And, I, and my original research was actually I have a PhD in medieval and Renaissance English literature. So that's another area of stuff. And it was like, well, so what the hell's going on? I mean, how does all this maybe fit together? And there is a present need in the sense that once you understand, once you have a point of view about what the heck the universal reality is all about, you then have a point of view about, well, how should I act? If that's what the world's really like, how should I act? We have a problem right now in that our ethics, which we have inherited from a religious worldview of many centuries, that religious worldview has lost, lost a lot of traction. It's being replaced with a secular worldview, and that's causing our ethics to be called into question, as in the United States, as in, is it truth or Trump? I mean, you, you, we're in a world right now where our ethics are, are really potentially under, under threat. So what I want to do with this book is say, look, let me tell you the, a secular story of the universe that is, as best I can tell, patched together from the best people I can read. I think this is what's going on. And then in that context, where do traditional ethics actually come from and what authorizes them and why do why are they still worth maintaining going forward? So that was kind of what I was trying to do. And I think you did a masterful job of it. And, you know, you have to excuse me because I do have some notes and, and of course, you know, a lot of I've, I've written a lot in the book. Um, but what, <laughs> but, but I want to point out what's interesting, you know, and, and we'll, we'll get into uh, more detail on it. So, you know, again, when it comes to metaphysics and you write about the meaning of life, there's so many directions you can go. What I loved is that you brought a framework to this, which is hard. That is, you know, framework, coming up with a framework for, for a sales strategy is difficult, let alone the meaning of life. And I'm going to show this, the, the viewers, at least all the ones who are watching on YouTube, this, this uh, framework. But you divided the uh, book up into, you know, just a part one and part two. Part one is metaphysics. Part two is ethics. And you essentially go into the metaphysics of entropy, which is a big, big, important part of it to start it all. You go into the metaphysics of Darwinism, metaphysics of memes, and of course, me as a marketer and somebody who enjoys reading about culture and why we do what we do, memes and memetics is a, is a big interest of mine. Um, actually, that was, aside from you writing the book, that was a big, when I looked it up on Amazon, I was like, there's a section on memetics, I have to get this now. Um, and then ethics, but the framework, the infinite staircase, which you call the metaphysics of entropy, right? As, as the audience can see, starts down here at the bottom with a foundation of physics and then starts moving its way up. We go to chemistry, biology, desire, consciousness, values, culture, language, narrative, analytics, and theory. And what's interesting to me is how were you able to come up with this framework? Because the, the beauty of reading broadly is that the mind does a very interesting thing of picking out pieces it needs to pay attention to and then somehow it weaves it together. What were you reading or thinking about that all of a sudden started to weave this staircase together where you say, I think I have something to start building on? Well, I, so I think I've been reading pretty eclectically, as you can imagine. Uh, and there's a, there's a bibliography. It's, just, it's, it's sort of like a hodgepodge of everything I've been reading for the last 20 years. My Kindle's very full and I love it. But I, was, but I think that the, the ideas that really helped to coalesce were around what the Santa Fe Institute was popularizing about 20 years ago around complexity and emergence. And this notion that 
complexity, the systems can self-organize, that you don't have to have an intelligent designer, that in fact, that through, through other forces, systems will, complexity will naturally emerge. So you think, well, that's kind of an interesting idea. And, and, and by the way, you can kind of see it for going from physics to chemistry, because all of a sudden, you know, chemical, chemical reactions, you know, you can explain them through physics, but they transcend physics. They, they, they go, and then when you get to biology, again, you can explain biology through chemistry, but it's like, no, but biology is a lot different. So there's these, what they call emergent properties. So they have the thought of, well, well can you just keep this staircase going? Mm. It, was clear, it was clear to me that physics was more primary than chemistry. It was clear to me that chemistry was more primary than biology. So I was pretty damn sure that those three stairs were in the right order. But I thought, well, emergence can only go up way. You can't, you can't emerge down. You can only emerge mm -hmm. up. If we're going to end up with, you know, Omar and Jeffrey on this podcast, and we have, you know, two billion years ago, we have bacteria. How the hell do you get from bacteria to here? And can you do it through this emergent staircase thing? And so I just tried to figure out a path where it, it, and the, the rule was every stair above requires the stairs below, mm -hmm. but no stair requires a stair above it, right? So in other words, it, emergence only goes up. It doesn't, physics does not so need the, chemistry, so meet, but chemistry meets, needs exactly, physics. Exactly, precisely. So then it was like, well, consciousness was the one. Well, like, what, where the hell does consciousness come from? I, I, I have life. I've got bacteria. Okay, that's good. I have how? What's the bridge? And so for me, I said, well, multicellular organisms. Okay, I could still get to there without. I can still be in biology, but but then desire and the hormonal signaling. And I thought, okay, that's probably the one that leads to select for consciousness, because the metaphysics of Darwinism are all based on competition for scarce resources. Well, you don't have a competition unless you have desire. So you have to have desire to get out there to play. Then when you run into scarce resources, the people who perform the best get their genes you know, perpetuated. And then consciousness became a very good trick. Mm. But consciousness, I think, emerges initially as just a good trick for fulfilling desires. And that, so that's kind of cool. And I thought, well, okay, but, but what about people and, and values in particular? And then I realized mammals are different from other animals. For, for, Actually, birds are sort of- For two specific reasons you point out in the book, which again, I, I have a degree in biology. I went to medical school and I was like, this one sentence explains how mammals are similar better than I've read in most books. And what were those two things? If you could share that with the audience. Well, the two things are that they, they nurture their young and, and, they, and, they, and they parent their young, essentially. Mm -hmm. So basically as a mammal, you learn the first year of your life, if you're not nurtured, you're dead. Right. Right. I mean, mammals cannot survive. So you learn love. You, we don't. You'll call it love. You don't even have a word for love. And if you're a, a deer, you never will have a word for love. But you experience love. Then you experience, you know, complete, total dependence and support from that. And then as you socialize as a mammal, mammals are social animals. They're different from crocodiles. They're different from from snakes and whatever. They're not so different from birds. Birds are kind of an interesting combination between a reptile and, and a mammal. Right. Yeah. The point is when you socialize. Yeah. When you socialize. You learn social values. So now, now you learn, and again, Darwin selects for it. If you cannot be sociable as a mammal, you're expelled. And when you're expelled as a mammal from your tribe, you, you die. Exactly. So, so in other words, this, so the core values of Christianity or Islam or any other religion, and the notions of love and respect and, and fairness and all those things, they're anchored in our mammalian history. They don't have to come from God down. They can come from Bambi up. <laughs> that's, a, that's very tweetable, by the way. You should tweet that out. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, and I think this is the thing for anybody who has a background in science and everything, which is, you know, even my father, like when he's, he's you know, used to do surgery, he, he'd tell me how exciting he would get when he's doing surgery. He's looking at all of this. He's like, it's just amazing. This all works. You know, when he looks at vasculature, he's like, how's this all happening? But you, I, I thought you picked the perfect comic for this, which is, with biology going to like consciousness, it's like, here's the formula, et cetera. And then, and then a miracle happens. And then we have, you know, and it's true, which is like, you know, all these cells that are working in unison and alignment within us, right? There's multiple universes within us. How does that all form together just to create consciousness, right? Right now that when I have an idea, where does that come from? You know? So it's, it's, and by the way, this is, we're still working on the mind brain relationship. I mean, third, Three centuries ago, 
they were completely dualistic. So Descartes said, you know, you, you've got a mind and you've got a body, and that's it. And yeah. they they connect the pineal gland, right? I mean, and no other place, right? Well, now with neuroscience, we're saying, no, hang on, hang on. We we know that that mental events correlate with 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 physical ele electrochemical activity in the brain. We know that. We got that. But we still don't have a good sense of where the hell is mind. Right. And and I think I think we I think one of the mistakes we tend to make is we try to locate mind just inside the brain. And it's not but how it you, works. If, if you if you no if you and I had never had any socialization if we were feral children, you know who were never exposed to language, we wouldn't have a mind. I mean you you have an animal mind. You 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 would have qualia. You'd have experiences, but you but you certainly wouldn't have anything that you and I think of as a mind. Mm -hmm. But that's language inflected, which means we learned it through other people. And, and then, of course, look, you, we're both participating in front of a computer. That's part of our extended mind now. Exactly. Google is part of my extended mind. So there's all that. So I think with, with mind, we have to be very careful not to be reductive to brain. I agree. We can't leave brain behind. Without brain, there is no mind. But, but, but. But you can't just say I can derive all of your mind from your brain because you can't. Yeah, it doesn't work. I, I completely, I completely agree. And you know, I think, uh, I think what's interesting is that you know, if you look at like uh, to, to get to get a little like nerdy about it, if you look at like Frederick Nietzsche's work, like Beyond Good and Evil, like what was he talking about there? You know, if you look at animals, if I if you think about a zebra in the savanna, it's beyond good and evil because it's just being. It's not thinking about the future. It's not thinking about the past. It's just right there in the present moment. And human beings cursed, you know, in, in, if you want to look at it in a religious sense, we were cursed with consciousness because now we can think about the future. We can think about the past. And there's this, that opens up this whole world of, let's say, psycho-cybernetics, which is this concept of if you, if you visualize and think about what you want in the future and you take action on it in a world of vibrations and you speak it into, into truth, like – That'll that'll realize, and that sounds like hocus pocus, except that no, it's it's just intentional, it's intentional behavior. behavior. No, yeah. no, Athletes no, show we, it we all the time. It. Every business plan, yeah. and well, every business plan you've ever seen yeah. does that. Now, it's an important thing what you said though is important. So that that zebra. So I think there's an animal theory of mind, and I spent a little time on this because I think it's important because animals have memories. They have strategies, right? They, they I mean, they, it, they, they, and they, and they, they have a sense of future. They, they predict. They don't, they don't contemplate their future, but they certainly can extrapolate from present tendencies. To absolutely, about, you know, and, and they also have memories. They say, "Oh, this is a bad water hole. There's lines around." And you probably saw anymore. this study. Like, even with, if you took a rat that never seen a cat in its entire life, and you waft cat odor, the rat will freak out. Where's that coming from, right? Yeah, and so so some of that is encoded genetically, and some of that is learned mimetically. So that that was the difference between the, so that's how we went from Darwinism to memes. So Darwinism is strategies for living that are communicated genetically, and and the metaphysics of memes is strategies for living that are communicated socially. And but so by the way, some of that shows up. We have culture actually showing up before language because. Tribes of chimpanzees and seabirds and whatever, they teach each other tricks. Mm -hmm. Well, tricks is a socially communicated strategy, right? I mean, it's a it's a trick. You learn how to be a, open the muscle by, you know, the, the otter at the, in the Santa, you know, in, in, in the Monterey Bay Ex is taking a rock and cracking open. And the even muscle, even right? birds when, when when they're when they're using tools, which is which is, I mean, yeah. ma seeing mammals do that, it's like it is it is very impressive. When you see a bird do stuff like this, like crows, it's unbelievable. Yes. Oh, and by the way, crows are smarter than you. I, 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 as a golfer, we have a bunch of crows around the course I play in, and they will steal you blind. They will just steal you blind. And they know who you are, by the way. They recognize you, and they, and they, and they know who the suckers are. Yeah. Really? I'm not teasing. They literally have proved that crows recognize who you are. Wow. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> but, 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 anyway Back to Darwin. Yes, 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 yes. Well, back to – so we had the Darwin and selecting genetically, and then you overlay – and by the way, that doesn't go away. That genetic stuff, predisposition still goes. So you, you, you'll you raise children and you'll see your children have some genetic predispositions for certain strategies. But then socially, once we get language, and the, if, if you get to back to Nietzsche and beyond good and evil, the, 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 the curse of language is you can be afraid of something that doesn't exist at a time that is not present. Yes. You know, and, and, and so it's like, whoa. 
And by the way, that, that same faculty allows you to do imagine, uh, strategic imagination, business planning, you, uh, you know, moral committing, uh, life commitments. You can have a new baby. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine your, your, you can start painting the nursery now. Deer I mean, yeah, can't do that. Yeah, and there's, I want to, I want to highlight that because I, I don't want the audience to miss that. That's a very important thing you just pointed out because the, you know, from all the things that I've read, and of course, like, you know, I'm 35 years old, I'm, I, I haven't, ex- I'm just starting my life, but there I've experienced life enough to realize this is true, which is the difference between the perception of reality within my mind and reality itself are pretty much the same thing with the exception of me, like walking in the street and getting hit by a car, but me experiencing, for example, fear in my mind of, of a future event that hasn't happened and probably won't is no different than me actually experiencing that event, you know, which, you know, old wives tale, if you go back in the Middle East and my, my father was giving me a hard time the other day about it, where he had mentioned something and I was like, don't, don't even talk about it. He's like, what are you becoming like the, 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 the women back home? And you're, you're, you're worried that if you speak it, I'm like, that's exactly what this is. There's no difference. I started a new business (laughs) venture. And the first thing I told my parents, I sat them down and thank God I I have wonderful parents. I said, listen, I love you to death. I know you support me. I know you're proud of me. I said, however, I'm, we're having a baby this year. I know that, but I'm leaving my job. I'm starting a business. I don't need your advice. I don't need you to worry. I don't need any of these things. All I need is just for you to ask me questions about how it's going and be positive and confident. That's it. If you cannot do that, we, we can't talk about this. <laughs> and you know what's funny? That's exactly what they did. What they did. And in the last three weeks, I've had amazing, I've had amazing results for the business. And you've had, I mean, they, they, I mean, look, as a parent, I'm now, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent now, which is congratulations. That's another cool thing. But, but the parent thing, by the way, you should just know, and your parents know this, the umbilical cord is never actually severed. And by the way, men have umbilical cords too. (laughs) So basically, as somebody once said, you're, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And it, That's it, so it, true. These that's bonds so that connect. These bonds that connect us are so they're so powerful, and that's that's why ethics is so important to to keep it anchored in reality and not let it get sidelined. Absolutely. Which is uh, no. Anyway. Quick, just small sidebar. Just you know, having a personal moment. I just I need to share this with you, and I want to. There's there's a next section of of the book. There's 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 a, a lot I want to make sure we cover, but. You know, something I noticed with my father, my father, um, very good health, thank God. He's working out a lot and everything. He's 76, so he had me when he was uh, later on in life. And I, what I've realized with people as they get older, especially our parents, is that one is that they become more sensitive about things, you know. And and the other thing is that a lot of times because, you know, you've done everything in life, you sort of revert. You know, I, I don't really believe we grow up. I think we're all children at heart. And you revert back to childhood. And so for a lot of people who I tell them, like, maybe you get annoyed that your mother or father calls you every day, right? But you, you get to have that conversation. And one day they're not going to be there and you're going to say, well, I wish I had that still. And you have to realize that when somebody does that, especially an older person, it's no different than a child calling you and asking about your oh, day and nice. then saying, you know, wanting to share with you what they did that day. So for me, when my father calls, sometimes yeah. I'm busy, I'm like, you know, I just talked to him like six hours ago, but then I try and answer because I realize he just wants to, he, he wants to listen to his son. He just wants to share, Hey, you know, I went to the gym today. This is what I did, etc. And you know, as busy as you might be, sometimes you need to just shut the hell up and just let your parent talk and just let them feel that you actually care and you want to, you want to hear about there's it. A, yeah. There's a wonderful principle. I think embedded in what you just said, which is you know, at one point, this is it's in the book about, you know, life is not about you. You, you, you're part of life. It's really important, but you can't make your life about you because if you make your life about you, you end up being too self-centered, too, too focused. It, it just doesn't work. And you never you have feel to be in fulfilled. Something else. You never feel fulfilled. Yeah, you don't. You don't. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. The the ego the ego wants to be in service. The ego doesn't want to be served. I mean, it thinks it wants to be served. I mean, and, and there, there's the, the egos that you see a lot that we call egotistical are people who have actually said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I am the center of the universe and, you, and that's how it works. But those people, that is, not a, that is not a path to happiness and it's not a path to power either. They think they're powerful, but they're actually not. But the point, if you put yourself in service to something, then A, 
you get fulfillment when it succeeds. And this is what par- what makes parenting so extraordinary because this little person is going to show up in your in your house, Omar, and they're going to own you. Yeah. I mean, you, you have zero chance. They're right about everything. I mean, go, I, when the baby's crying, yeah, they, I can't well, argue and say there's nothing to cry about. They're right. <laughs> well, he's, he's, and, and and the first time they smile at you, you you're just going to burst. I mean, it it's it. So it's amazing. And, and so that, that's we just want to honor that. And and and, I, and you know we've been through this pandemic for the last couple of years. We've not been able to socialize as much as we needed to. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to connect physically as much as we needed to. And I think that's contributed to my concern about. Ethics is getting is getting uh, it's floating free from its moorings and it's 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 getting it's getting marginalized. Mm. Uh, if you were if you were having a lot of these experiences that we just talked about, you don't need to read a book about ethics. You're living ethics. But is this, this this distance thing and the digitalization of so much that we that we do now? It's so digital, and then we have all the digital devices and the digital distractions, and we talk about that a lot. It's it's marginalizing the core of our humanity if we're not careful. But that, that, I guess that's where I put no, it. No, absolutely. You know, I want to dig into that and, and, and let's use, I think this is a good uh, segue or bridge for this. You, somebody who's like very egotistical. So I'm going to, this is going to be sort of a, a, a roundabout question because I want to, I, I need to fill in some of the audience on, on these. So first, can you share with us a quick definition of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics before I, and, and I'm going to use that to, 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 to set up my, my question. Okay, okay. All right, so the whole, the whole, the one way to explain the entire universe, if you just wanted to do physics alone, is 13.8 billion years ago, there was nothing, and there was a, we call it a Big Bang, which is, it, it's the most ridiculous Big Bang you ever heard. But the point is, very shortly thereafter, there was a universe, but that universe was hotter than the hinges of Hades by a long shot, and anything that's hot will disperse in order to cool off. And basically, the universe just wanted to cool off. And basically, 13.8 billion years later, you can say, well, it's still just trying to cool off. The universe continues to expand, and every chemical reaction tries to reduce the amount of free energy in the system. And yes, you can you can create complexity locally, but you can't. But but to do that, you have to actually create more free energy someplace else because you can never go backwards. You can only go forward. Mm. So it's not the arrow of time; it's actually the arrow of entropy. And basically. The metaphysics of entropy says, when although the universe is trying to go from this maximum concentration to maximum disorder, in the in that process things get tangled up in each other and they actually create complexity. They actually create more and more emergent complex systems. What we're seeing on Earth, but they do so by 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 leveraging entropy, not by fighting entropy. Entropy is like a river that runs the mill that that's the mill create the products. At the end of the day, more energy still got, you can't get 100% of the energy of the river into the mill. That's what the, th- the law of thermodynamics says. So, so it's this world where there's, this me- there, there's infinite energy dispersing itself, and we're tapping into it as we, as we go along. That's the metaphysics of entropy. Got it. And again, you know, um, you know what a lot of people don't realize, they, they think, you know, you, you have a background in business, everything. You know, you have a PhD in, in, in literature. Specifically, it was, what was it? It was medie- medieval renaissance. Okay. Yeah. So in that, um, one thing I love about the book is again, very complicated subject that you, you really distill down. That's easy to understand and enjoyable read, but also you have a great wit to you because I, I never heard of this analogy, but I'm going to use it, which is the universe is just like a teenager. It just wants to be cool. <laughs> well done. Touche. But going back, okay, again, good, good, going good. back to the ego, do you feel like that's a microcosm of this concept? Because if you think about somebody who's very egotistical, what do they want? It, the universe is centered around them. They're trying to control everything, right? But that's not going to lead to happiness. And at some some point, chaos will emerge because when you have too much order, disorder will be introduced because that's you know that's how the universe sort of builds on each other, whether it's organisms or consciousness, et cetera. Is that, is that too off, too far off to say? Is that, is that a... W- it's not too far off. I, I, think it's a, I think it's an important thing to say about ego, which is, look, the ego evolved because we needed to have an agent in the world. If, we're, if you're gonna survive, you need to act in the world and you need to have a, a kind of a command performance. It's somewhere in the frontal occipital part of your brain, apparently this guy's hanging out. 
but but they, it's your decision making. Executive, they call it the executive function in, neuro, in, in neuroscience. And then, we, but it, part of what we're talking about is the ego. So the real question is, what is the agenda for that ego? Because mm-hmm. the ego wants the ego wants to do stuff. And the ego needs to measure. The ego is very performance oriented. Needs details. Needs to measure. It needs to, Need to, need yeah. yet. And, it, and by the way, it's a control function. So it, it wants to be in control. The problem is, that, as you just said, control for control's sake leads to, you know, it, un, unattractive outcomes. But control in service to a higher good leads to very exciting outcomes. And so why is that? Is that because of novelty, of, do you think? Because, you know, like, why, why is so that? Well, it's a good point. Well, first of all, it has to do with success, meaning... If you put yourself in service to something outside of yourself, the probability that you can enlist others in that cause is much higher because they also can be inspired. And that has an evolutionary function because of our tribal mentality. Because now we have more we have more of us working together to achieve an outcome. When you say I'm going to optimize for myself, I can force people. I can be a dictator. I can, you know, I, I, or an abusive parent or, you know, at any level. But but the universe is now in resistance to you, meaning any discretionary time or resource the universe has, they're going to put it someplace else. They're not going to bring it to you. Yeah. And, and so and we yeah. see that, you know, it's interesting. We even see and I think, um, you know, uh, one of the one of the more interesting books I read, because apparently Newt Gingrich, of all the things he's done in his career, he, he contributes this. He attributes this book to a lot of his success, which is Chimpanzee Politics by Duval. And they mention in this book, and I tell this to startup founders, which is like, look, even with chimps, you can have one alpha chimp that is the biggest, strongest, meanest, etc. That only lasts so long because all that needs to happen is two chimps half the size wait for a bad day and they'll kill them, right? Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting how the world so I, works like that. It is. It is. And it, by the way, we're all going to die eventually, anyway. I, I have a friend, by the way, one of my favorites. I didn't use this in the book, but uh, his his quote about mortality is. Life is a sexually communicated disease that is 100% fatal. That is, and you go, that is, <laughs> I, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't argue against that. You, you can't, I, you can't, can't argue with no. it, right? So, you can't, so, so then you go, okay, well, if that's true, then, you know, we were playing this, we're playing at the last chapter, as you know, it's, it's called being mortal. And it's like, look, we're playing a game that has time limits. So what's the point? And 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 you, this is where we got into the the third part about memes about narratives that give meaning to life, and and I, 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 religious narratives for a long time were the ones that people said, well we'll we'll organize socially around these narratives that give meaning to our life as a community, and we'll do that. The last two hundred years, I would say that more of the narratives have been secular, not social, but you know, but they're still narratives. They're still narratives that is, inspire people to act in certain ways and to be in service to certain causes and, and certain values. And so I think narratives and being conscious of the narratives that you, and then I said, look, the ego is just a character in a play. Mm-hmm. You're just, you're just, you're, you're, you're playing a part in a narrative. You're like, you know, you, what, what, by the way, what instrument did you play in the symphony? A uh, piano. Okay. So you, so you're the piano in, in, in the, in the jazz quartet or in the symphony or whatever it is, you know, that's, that's what you're doing. So, so, so you, and, and by the way, it's a beginning, a middle and an end to that performance. Well, that's an analogy for life. And, and then, then you want to think, well, so what's a good life versus a not so good life? And, and, and then how would I live better? And, and that's where all these things came from. You know, um, and so we're, uh, again, I told you I was going to Larry King this, which is you're going to say things. I could have all the agenda I want, but you're going to say things that are going to take us in very interesting directions. I was very, uh, you know, I, I know my listeners, they love the whole point of mind loom, by the way, you know, mind being mind loom, being like a loom that you're weaving, which is when you read Bridal and you talk these topics, these things weave together beautiful fabric, things that you never thought of. And I feel like this, this is like the perfect uh, conversation for that. You know, on the topic of ego, uh, a couple of thoughts, and I'm wondering what you, what, how you react to this is that, you know, you know, Ryan Holiday had uh, his popular book, Ego's the Enemy. And I think, and especially the the Western world, we, we've become very self-centered and everything. And learning how to manage the ego is important because sometimes, perfect example, all the young professionals listen to this and I tell them is that sometimes you want to go work for XYZ company, not because you really want to, but because that's what your ego wants. It's like, oh, I get this shiny title. I get this salary, this number and everything. But your intuition 
which is never going to give you details. It's never going to yell at you. It's going to be your wise self that nudges you actually wants you to do something differently. And we focus so much on what our ego wants when in reality, listening to our intuition is so much more important. The problem though with the intuition is that it's subtle and it's really scary because it'll never give you details such as in my two, two examples in life, when I was in medical school, spent all my life trying to get to med school, get in full scholarship halfway through, I think I need to leave. That, that was a weird feeling. And I've learned to follow intuition in this, in this universe we live in. Cause now again, I just left a, a, a tech company. I'm well known at this point. Thank God in my career where I can go to another company. I have a, my first child on the way. My wife is not, you know, I love her to death, but she's, you know, she's, she's working part-time and in the middle of the pandemic and everything, my intuition said, you should just start a business. And I have no reasoning or, and, and when this happened, Jeff, in December, the best part, and, and this is the crazy thing about my life. It's not like I had an idea like, oh yeah, I can start a business. I just said, yeah, I'm going to start a business. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm just going to go along with it. You know, what, what are your thoughts our on lives, that? By the way, our lives, our, our lives, our lives are more parallel than you think. So really? I would, I, that's like I, the best compliment I, I've gotten. You to, well, you went, that's what well, a great way to start 2020. Well, you. <laughs> You went to med school, you were going to become a doctor, right? Yep. I went to grad school, I was going to be an English professor. I actually got to be an English professor at a small college in Michigan. I, in, in the, between the third and the fourth year, it was clear that our family needed to live in California. We, we, we had very deep, deep ties to the West Coast, and we were not going to put down our roots in, in, in Michigan. Mm. And Marie said, you know, I have to go back to California. Do you want to come? <laughs> and, I, and I said, yeah. Were, were you then, married at that point? Was I going to be able to get a job? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We had three kids. Every, every she, she was, but you know, she, she was saying, basically, she was saying, "I'm going to die in Michigan if we don't get out of here sooner or later. We, we have to go now." So she so was like, "Do you want to come?" It was really sweet, actually. It was a very, very sweet conversation. But it was like, it was like that the the inarticulate, intuitive self giving you an idea. Mm. And I had, we had no plan. We, I had no job. And we had no home. I mean, we, we, we were going to stay with our parents for, you know, until we could find something. But we just did it, okay? It turned out that I, that's how I got into the software industry. That, that's how I got, that was how I got into And what, because, what year was this when you moved you know, to Silicon Valley? 1978. Oh, my 1978, God. 1978, where I'm 32 years old. Like, right, yeah, right at the beginning. Right, boom, you know, and, and so I do that. And then, uh, and then the next one, the other one was, I did what you just did now, which is, I've been at Regis McKenna. I, I've been very well respected firm, by the way. In the nineties, yeah. Regis McKenna was like, McKenna. you know, saying Regis McKenna and marketing. That's like saying I work for Google and tech just for those listening. So yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Five years in, I've made partner and I say to Marie, I think I need to leave. <laughs> and it's like, our kids are going to go to college. Our kids are about to go to college. It's like, and, and you know, and yeah, and, and, yeah. I think I need to leave. Now, I had, I had, I had written Crossing the Chasm, but Crossing the Chasm at the beginning, like it only sold like three thousand books in the first six months. So it wasn't like there was some hit here. Uh, but I said, yeah, I need to do this. And so she said, yes, yes, you can do that. And I'm sure she was absolutely sweating bullets. But but the point is, again, the, and, and there's a there's a metaphor in the east. The Eastern model of the, of the, of the talk about the, the yin and the yang. And the yin is sort of like the ego. It's sort of like the I, the part of the personality that calls itself I. And the self is the, is, is, is the, is the dark, is the other half of the, of, the, uh, of the yin yang model. And so the I self model meant a lot to me. Because when you were saying intuition, I would have put, I, my word for that would have been self, mm -hmm. that yourself is speaking to you. I did write a chapter in the book called Honoring the Ego, because I actually think we've over-rotated. I completely agree yes. with you on that. <laughs> okay, so, there, so I do think that the ego can be a barrier, and I think there was a time with the post-enlightenment, the enlightenment kind of celebrated the ego, probably over-rotated too far to rationality in the ego. But then I think we over-rotated too far away, and, and we're disparaging of the ego. The ego makes every one of our every one of our risks that we take. The ego has to take for absolutely, and it, it exists for a reason. You know, okay. so, yeah. So, and, and 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 by the way, you have to make those choices in real time with imperfect data, and you you yourself are imperfect. So, perfect is not an option on the table. So, you're going to do some stupid stuff, and, and, and it's like, damn. 
but but and so I think you have to be humble. I think humility is the thing that, that the ego needs the ego needs to embrace, but it should not retreat from engagement. Absolutely. It should be brave. It just needs to be humble. I, I completely agree. And again, um, you know, I I feel like so so many of the, the young people, there's a lot of young people listening to this podcast, they're, they're going to be re-listening re to this because there's so many um, foundations and first principles of life that's being shared. You know, uh, to, to quote, you know, of all people, the late Tony Shea, uh, founder of Zappos, he had a really interesting quote about yeah, ego. Yeah, I do. yeah. yeah and, I, and I agree with him, which he said, you know, ego can be bad, but you would be an idiot if you don't pay attention to what your ego wants. And I'm going to, let me say this publicly so I can get more used to it. I addressed that back in December and I was like, yeah, you know, that's true. And I said, what does my ego really want? And, and this is uncomfortable. I hate saying this even now and admitting it, but like one thing my ego loves, I love attention. I love posting things online. I like getting that attention. And so when I said, you know what? Yeah. Okay. If that's what my ego wants, I need to give it that. So it's, so it feels good because if it does, if it doesn't get that, it's going to come out sideways in some ways. Right. But something, yes. if there's one simple, it's not even a framework, it's a, it's a formula, I guess. And I'm wondering, in, in, in writing The Infinite Staircase, what your reaction to this is, should people essentially practice listening and taking action on their intuition? And once they have an idea that, yeah, if I untangle intuition and ego, you know, like, do I stay in this job or do I quit and pursue something? My intuition is nudging me here. Okay, I think that's, I think consciously that's the right way to do it. And then you recruit your ego to get 100% behind that intuition to start actually putting into action. Is that the way that people should I be doing it? I think that's exactly the, I, th I think that's a very good model. I do. I, I think, by the way, you know, there's a chapter in the book of the transitions between metaphysics and ethics called Being the Transition. And it's, it's basically a, a chapter about mindfulness. But it's because mindfulness teaches you how to listen to your, it, it, it doesn't even teach you. Mindfulness allows you to get quiet enough to hear your intuition. So your intuition, yourself is there. I mean, the, the creative consciousness is there, but we overwrite it with, you know, with distraction and with words and with anxieties and to-do lists and all the other crap. So, and by the way, we've got to do much of that stuff. It's not, I'm not trying to disparage it, but, but if that's all you get, then you lose touch with your center, your centered self, or you know all the all the stuff that the Eastern traditions try to bring to our attention. You need you need that now. And I love what you just said because it's not like you get some message from the self that says, you know, go. You know, it's not how it happens. Immediately just rush up. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that. But you do get this this. Hey, it's it's like a little tugging on you. Exactly. Hey. hey. Hey, 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 and then you well, what, 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 what? <laughs> and, and it takes a while to sort it out. And if you if you have a relationship of intimacy with someone, and when you talked about your dad, and, and, and I'm sure you're going to have that, you have it with your wife, and you're going to have it with your your children. You get to share those things in the right moment and with the right tones. And like as you said, you know, hey, dad, I'm going to do this. Um, I, I, I really I would love to get your support, but I I don't want to have to. Debate it. I, I, that, that debate is not debate. Does not uh, that whole conversation with the self? Has, there's no place for debate. That's the that is an ego. That's egos talking to other egos. Yes, this is a much quieter conversation. But it but it's got to be two way. It can't. It's it's it's. You can't dictate to the self, but you also can't. You have to you have to stand up for your ego too. Absolutely, and I think that's the one thing I've noticed. People, you know, and and this is a good good segue into because I there's some there's some parts on desire that you talk about. And I, I want to, you know, there's nothing that I want to challenge, but there's something I, I want to dig dig into a little bit. But yeah. you know, when we look at mimetics, M I M, you know, Rene Girard's work and everything about you know we desire things not because we need them, but because we see other people. And again, thinking about the second part of being a mammal is that we we live in these communities, these tribes, and so when people have certain things we end up wanting them, right? And, you yeah. know, yep. and you, when you talk about desire, for, you know, and, and again, I want to read from the book so I don't misquote. So you talk about that without language, without a narrative, there can be no self, self and awareness becoming or becoming self-conscious. And you mentioned qualia, which is a philosopher's word for the myriad of experiences that we register as personal or subjective. Okay, and this is in your chapter in, Dar in Darwinism. The framework you introduce yep. is this development pathway which goes desire, noise, signal response, fulfillment, qualia, language, and quality will always be closer to our hearts than words. My question to you though, is that 
it feels like there's got to be two different versions of desire because I, I feel like there's certain parts of desires that are I, at least maybe I'm wrong. I don't seem a Darwinistic, like somebody's desire to, I don't know, buy a Lamborghini or actually now that I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. Maybe that is Darwinistic because aside from liking cars, why do you buy a Lamborghini? Cause you want to be sexually, uh, you want, you want to be sexually more attractive. <laughs> you want to attract. Nope. I just, I, never mind. that, 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 that ended. That ended faster than it started. <laughs> and you know what? Look well, what happened there. Isn't that amazing? I was thinking about this when I read this, but the moment that I spoke about it, again, using language and self-consciousness, yeah, 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 yeah. it kind of solved itself. <laughs> it's fun. It, it's fun. And and I do think it's important to, to, to realize that there is that, – that, Language, you know, that I taught, I used a, a Robert Frost poem at one point called "The Rose Family," where where language is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool. It's, it's, we've just spent the last forty five minutes. It's been entirely mediated by language, but but it can get in the way, and, and, and what it can get in the way of, in particular, is this thing that philosophers call qualia. And you were kind of, I think it's it's the same genre as intuition. It's the same thing I'm talking about about self, which is which is understandings that are that are that are preverbal and and they're not they're just a part of the puzzle not the whole puzzle but but if we but the problem with language can actually um shout they're not shout them out you, it, it kind of just blocks them if you're not careful because we tend to classify and, and and be too analytical too quickly and so i think mindfulness or something like mindfulness uh, I mean, your dad uses the gym, maybe whatever. It's like we need to be we need to be integrated. We need to integrate below the level of language if we're going to be successful as human beings. At least I think we do. I you know I completely agree. And again, I don't think Francis Ford Coppola. Great. <laughs> this was that was that was a a, a hard left turn. Right? Um, meant to do this, <laughs> but in The Godfather, um, that was Coppola, right? Not Scorsese. Okay, yeah. yeah okay, yep, I was yep, right. Yep. Um, you know, uh, Michael Corleone said something, which when I watched it when I was younger, didn't make sense to me. But then as I go to getting into psychology, I'm like, that tells you everything. And he had this quote, I hope it's Godfather. I'm pretty sure it is, where he said that his his father, he said, you know, my father told me, um, the more you understand yourself, the more you understand the world around you. And then at that point, anything is possible. And I think a journey outward is really starts with a journey inward, because then when you stop, like, depression, anger, all these things. Mindfulness doesn't tell you to ignore those things. It tells you, no, you should, you should crawl down in that hole and sit with that emotion or feeling, whatever that thing, you, that dark place you don't want to look, you actually need to go in there because that's when you will find yourself, you know? Right. And, and, and by the way, it, 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 those dark places, I mean, the, 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 when we know something about the biochemistry of neuroscience. Some, by the way, some people have biochemical imbalances that create darkness that they, you just can't, I mean, you really do need to chemically interact with the body because it's just, it's absolutely, it's, 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 yeah. but, but setting that aside, if we just talk about most of us who are, you know, trying to find homeostasis, we, we're, we're wandering around, we're too excited one day and we're too sad one day and we're over this, that. But I think mindfulness lets you do is say, look, whatever it is, for, as you said, dwell with it, because if you dwell with it, it will release. And, and what you really want to do is get back to to centeredness so that you can be active and, and not only an agent in the world, but but fulfilled. I mean, the weird thing about mindfulness is, and being is when you are doing absolutely nothing, you're just all you're doing is just being aware of being. It's a very fulfilling state. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa, who knew? And so, and it's, of course, it's energizing because if you can bring that, if you can bring that centeredness into your life, the, what you give to other people is just so much more powerful because it's not overwritten with your anxieties or your ambitions or your, you know, whatever, whatever thing that's a little bit squirrely. It's just like, no, it's just, you're just showing up. And, uh, and I'm sure musicians have the same experience, you know, or athletes have the same mm. experience, you know, they get in the flow and they're, and when you're in the flow, that's what's going on. You're, you're not, you're not um, disintermediating your own, your own energy. No, absolutely. And, you know, I know you wrote this book because you feel like uh, we're living in a world that's sort of departing from a lot of like religious philosophies and it's becoming more secular. 
I feel like, you know, it became the world, at least me growing up in the 2000s, religion was like a bad thing where everyone's departing from it, you know, 2000 to 2015. Something happened, I, at least I feel it in the last years. I'm not, I don't consider myself religious, but something is starting to bring, and it's like not just me, a lot of people back to it. And, and I'm, I'm not saying going back to church, but something, something. No, like, no, no, like no, no. Even, even atheists, they're not it's really atheists. They, they, they're, they're religious no, to something else, you know? Yeah, it's, I, I think the correct word, I mean, the, 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 if you look at the, at the research, what they'll say is, I, I do not identify with the religion, but I, have a, but I have a spiritual life. Right. And I think spiritual is kind of the current phrase that people say, yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure what it means, but that's what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> because, because it, you know, because there is a spiritual dimension to life. I mean, you, you need, you need to re-energize. You need to renew. You need to restore. Sleep helps a ton. By the way, if you're a good sleeper, it's better for your back. If, if you've ever had insomnia for any length of time, it's no fun. Mm -hmm. So sleep is helpful. You know, um, love is helpful. Uh, friendship is great. Um, but, but spiritual experience, with, and it, historically it used to come from prayer. It would come from uh, conversion experiences. It would come from, but then you had the, the, the transcendentalists and the romantics who said, no, it's nature. You, you can walk in nature. The problem with all of them, from my point of view, was they were intermittently successful. Mm. Like if you went to church, you, wouldn't, you couldn't go to church and, and have some confidence. I'm going to have a spiritual experience. You might, but you might not. You couldn't go out in the nature and say, I'm going to have a spiritual experience. You might, but you might. But you had a spiritual hunger. Mm. You, you, wanted, you wanted something. And so what I, and in my case, transcendental meditation was my version of mindfulness. I've been meditating for 50 years. And so it's, it's just been a hugely, hugely uh, useful thing because it's like, I'm sorry, this is available on request 24-7. It's like, whoa, uh, that's, that's like an amazing gift. And I think and, and, and it's a form, of, but my point is, if you don't have anything that fills that bucket at all, I, you get tired, you get cranky, you get angry, you know, you, you start getting, falling prey. I mean, there's all these very frightening forces in our digital universe, right? I mean, the political forces in the United States just, I, I think, are very frightening. And, it's, and, the, and the social media stuff, I mean, the stuff that, the, the dark stuff that we always talk about, um, I just, and then the, the, the misinformation, and then the deliberate, the fact that very intelligent people would deliberately manipulate misinformation for political purposes, which is what we're seeing rampant. I just, I just, I, I, I just wouldn't have believed it would have happened. So I'm, that's my, that's my, that's my boogeyman. That's, that's the nightmare in my closet. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. And I mean, you know, on, on that point, like, you know, again, uh, and I, you know, my wife is, my family's from the Middle East. My wife, I'm first generation American. My wife is Turkish. So when she came here to the States, I, you know, she's learning about American life, um, you know, I consider myself patriotic. I'm not somebody who's a diehard uh, American. You know, there's things in this country that needs to get better. But let me tell you, I'm very proud to be living here. I'm grateful to be living here. It's, you know, pe people who come here from, from back home who might complain, I'm like, well, tell me a better place to live where you can, you know, start a company. Look, my wife was here as an immigrant. And six months in, she got, she got to create a YouTube channel, uh, start selling her, her food. You know, you can't just do that in every other country. But anyway, uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Back to the point that I was making. <laughs> okay. Um, the First Amendment is so important in this country for a reason because I, I think the founding fathers who who were who were who who had Christian beliefs that all men were created equal. The you know slavery. Yeah. That's that. There's a lot of history that is is not taught correctly. Yeah, right. You know that's an, that'll be another episode. But they believe that because yes. in order to to, your, to to the point of the book, in order to think, to be conscious of everything, you have to speak. You have to articulate. Look at what just happened earlier when I started articulating it. My concern is that while yeah. social media was great, it can, it made the world smaller. The problem, though, is that we're not speaking, with the exception of, like, videos. It's mainly through text. And there's a big difference between text and speaking. And our mind wasn't just – yeah, my, our mind wasn't developed to – like, if you go from one room to another, it changes context. It's changing context a thousand times a minute. And the and the – and let me just throw like one one other wrench into this uh, to 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 get to get your 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 thoughts. You know, I, I want you to riff on this a bit. Is that 
all social media, and let's just look at Twitter, for example, is, you know, AI is in there. The problem with AI, with artificial intelligence, is that it is a centralizing technology. There's a reason why the CCP in China love AI. It's a centralizing technology. And so when it centralizes things, what does it do? It centralizes things that are going to have engagement and trends. What trends, what engages the most? Chaos, anger, violence. And so AI will never allow human beings to destroy each other. But every year, like Metcalf's law, it's making us more and more divided because that's how AI is reproducing. So if you can riff on that a bit. <laughs> I, I think I, I think the current, I think to be fair, at least in the United States, I can't talk about China very well, but in the U.S., we, and, and Facebook is, is, is the current villain of choice. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of earned the it's reputation. It's definitely earned, absolutely. Which is, which is, if the job is to attract eyeballs for advertisers, which is the economic model that, that supports these uh, social media, then yes, you, the more the more emotionally, uh, hormonally uh, excited the individual is, the more likely they will click again. So I mean, basically, we're we're now with pigeons trying to you know get get the, the reward. So and it's some version of you know some neurochemistry and neurotransmitter in our brains getting getting reinforced when we're doing this. So so we they try, the, the first generation of algorithms maybe even the current generation is actually uh, I I'm not sure how I, I, I probably I think I think it emerged I think I think polarization emerged initially. Somewhat surprisingly, I don't think they were thinking that they weren't trying to put. I agree. I think it, it emerged but, as a as a result of AI, AI trying to reproduce. Yeah, exactly. it, you know, yeah, it was an unintended consequence of, of of essentially trying to maximize clicks. Okay, we have now called that out, and I think and I and I think we have to be. Uh, I don't I don't have a lot of confidence in legislation because it's such a ham handed thing. I think what has to happen is a generation, the, the current generation, needs to say. This is not right. We're not going to do this. We're not going to support companies that do this. We are going to seek to, to create algorithms that are that are create community, not create the, the polarity. Now that you can do that. I mean, if, if I gave you the problem, if you were a data scientist and I said, look, I want you to create machine learning algorithms that create community, not not polarization. That's a that's a that's a doable task. But we haven't done it yet and we haven't called it out yet. And part of the reason is, I think the monetization uh, of that would not be the same. It would, it would not be. Uh, and so I think there's that anxiety about monetization, but it's like, man, we're going, we're going the wrong way. So even though it looks like it's a good way to go, you know, we got to go the other direction. Yeah. And I think the unfortunate thing is that the, uh, this, this is accelerating because not only is it happening on, but it's being extended into the real world because look online real, it's the same thing. It's just like what we talked about earlier, what you experience in your mind versus in real life. It's, it's the same thing, you know, capital riot was a video game. I mean, I mean, by the way, that's how the Republicans are trying to present it a year later. I mean, the, the Trump, the Trump narrative is the capital riot was, mm, yeah. Mm. But, but the point was to your point, it was just simply a natural extension of all the polar polarizing narratives that everybody was hearing. And look, I have a lot more empathy for the people who participated in that riot because I think they were genuinely motivated. I, I don't agree with their motivation. I certainly don't agree with their behavior. Same here. But I have empathy with yeah. them. What I don't have empathy for are the people that knowingly manipulated those people. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's the part that I just, I have no empathy for. I know, I, I, I'm 100% with you. Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? You were say? Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm getting a little, a little time sensitive. Oh, got it. So then let's, let's, yeah, and I appreciate you coming on. Let's, let's wrap it, wrap it up. Uh, can we get you for five more minutes? Sure, go oh, ahead. There we go. Let's we got it for five more minutes. Yeah. All right. That's okay. We're going to have you back on. Um, so just to kind of, just to kind of just, you know, wrap up. And again, I'm going to leave the, sh the link for the book in the show notes, everybody, please buy the book, buy it through this podcast. You can support it of course, and use that affiliate link. But I want to read the last, the very, very last set, uh, sentence of your book. And I want you to kind of, uh, you know, sort of close us out here as to when, so when you wrote this book, when people read it, what is your biggest wish that would happen with an individual? And then of course, 
within a community and, you know, and a sort of larger group of people when they read this. The last sentence you say is this, okay? What we've sought to demonstrate in this book is that they are really equally compatible with a strategy for living unfolding in a secular universe. In either case, we carried forward, we're carried forward by the narrative we embrace. They provide the foundation for our strategies for living. We are storytelling animals living out our stories as best we can. That is the common thread that unites us all. So take us home on that last sentence, Jeff. Well, you know, I mean, me, I think meaning comes from stories. We, I, I, I think we, I think if you had to say what is, you know, there was man was the rational animal was what was I think Aristotle and and you know uh, what, but I think we're storytelling animals, and the story is how we explain the world to us. That's how we explain it to children. It's how children explain things to each other. It, it's 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 what we say to each other every time we see each other. How was your day? I'll tell you a story about my day. What happened at work? I'll tell you a story about my, what happened in the paper. What did you read? You know, it's it's, all, it's stories. So then the, 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 if you say, well, now, but my life is a set of stories. And, and I think there are narrative threads. Like I have a home, uh, I have a home life, I have a work life. They're not, they're not the same thread, mm -hmm. they, they, but they interact with each other. So I think being sensitive to the fact that narratives. So then you talk about, well, well, what's a responsible narrative? And, and how do you act within a narrative? And one of the things you want to do in a narrative is you want to, you want to be consistent with your character. So part of it is, who, who's your character? And we talk about the book about, well, who do you look up to? Maybe maybe you could start by just emulating them as a way of building your character. But over life, we build a character and, and, and we represent ourselves as that character. And then we want to act in ways that that are consistent with that character and then honor, then honor the narratives that we want to support and then honor the roles that we're playing in them. And I, I do think that that's what we're... And so I think... The, because the narratives themselves can separate, you know, as, as we know, an Islamic narrative right now and an atheistical narrative right now are not good. Like the, what happens in France with Charlie, whatever that thing was, you know, that was just a, that was just a narrative collision. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So, so we know that narratives can be, can, 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 can kill each other. I mean, they, they can be genocidal narratives, right? But, but the notion that people need narratives and that we, then that we, that the, one of the ways we can get closer to each other is to, understand to try to understand the other person's narrative because they have a story everybody has a story and and what's your story and then and then and because once you understand their narrative you go oh oh well if that's if that's what you think's going on i kind of see what you're doing and that and that allows us to to come together even when we disagree uh but if we so anyway that was that was kind of the idea behind fantastic that. last question this is a very quick one if if I took out a billboard or a notification on the phone that everyone on planet will see every morning when they wake up, what message do you put on that notification or billboard? Oh my goodness. Probably good morning. I mean, really seriously, I, I think you want to bring beginner's mind to every day. Mm. I, I think good morning's fine. You know, just, yeah, don't come with a script. I mean, I, this is a life, you want to have a script in the background, but it's improv in the foreground. Mm. So I think you just want to like, you know, just good morning. Uh, very quotable. <laughs> Jeffrey Moore it is such an honor and pleasure. I hope to have you back on. Stead Jeff Moore's book. Please go buy the rest of his book, but start with The Infinite Staircase. You will thank me later. Bye for now. That's our episode today, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. Hey, join others and leave us a five-star review. So if you're on Spotify, just click the five stars at the very top of the episode and subscribe. If you're on Apple, give us five stars, subscribe, and write a short review. And lastly, if you're watching this on Spotify, go to the bottom. You'll see a place where we left poll questions for you to comment and give us feedback on. See you next time.